You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. In October 2002, over a three-week period, snipers killed 10 and wounded three others in and around Washington, D.C. Now, 20 years after, we're taking a look back to consider some of the players and events surrounding this time of fear and terror. This is Thomas Canavan, Executive Director of the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today kicks off some very special bonus content from our Precinct 444 podcast. This is part one of a three-part special look we're calling 20 Years After the Beltway Sniper. This special series is brought to you by Off-Duty Management. Off-Duty Management is dedicated to supporting and protecting law enforcement agencies, their officers, and community vendors by offering a fully customizable, centrally administrated, no-cost solution that manages all aspects of off-duty programs and keeps agencies in full control, mitigating their risk and liability. You can learn more about them at offdutymanagement.com. In part one, we'll look at Chief Moose, his story, and legacy. Chief Moose was the chief of police for Montgomery County, Maryland, during the bizarre sniper case, which terrorized the area around Washington, D.C. and captivated the nation. He took the lead in efforts to apprehend the suspects and became known far outside the D.C. Beltway. Chief Moose passed away in November 2021, but we knew we couldn't consider the 20th anniversary of the sniper case without taking some time to reflect on the role of Chief Moose during this harrowing time. To help us share this story, I was honored to interview current Chief of the United States Capitol Police, J. Thomas Manger. Chief Manger followed Chief Moose in Montgomery County, Maryland, and also served as Chief of the Fairfax County, Virginia Police Department during the sniper investigation. Chief Manger will share his memories on the sniper case of working alongside Chief Moose and of following in his footsteps in Montgomery County. We'll then hear directly from Chief Moose himself in an oral history interview previously recorded for the National Law Enforcement Museum. We're now present 20 years after the Beltway Sniper, Part 1, Chief Moose, His Story and Legacy. Chief Manger, thank you for being here today. This episode is part of a limited series that we're doing focused on remembering the DC sniper attacks 20 years later. Today, we're gonna hear a segment from Chief Charles Moose, who unfortunately passed away almost a year ago on November 25th, 2021. Chief Moose participated in our oral history program on the 10 year anniversary of the sniper attacks in 2012 that allowed us to capture his experience throughout the DC Sniper's investigation. In the public eye, Chief Moose led the hunt for the DC Snipers as the primary law enforcement official who almost daily provided our region with updates and leadership that reassured us law enforcement would not stop in their pursuit of the perpetrators. So here we are 20 years later to remember his role throughout those three weeks in October of 2002 when residents of D.C., Maryland, and Virginia were living in terror. Chief Manger, thanks for offering to stop by today and to talk with us a little bit about your experience during that time 
and working with Chief Moose as well as succeeding him as chief of the Montgomery County Police Department. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your career as a law enforcement officer and chief in Fairfax County? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for, for having me here. It's, a, it's an honor to uh, talk about Chief Moose and, and um, certainly uh, remember those um, difficult days back in 2002. Um, my career actually started in uh, 1976. I, was, um, I had just graduated from college and um, got a job as a summer police officer at, in Ocean City, Maryland. They, they would hire extra cops during the summer, and I, I did that. And while I was there, I was applying to every police department in the Baltimore and Washington, D.C. region. And uh, just happened to uh, that Fairfax County called me and uh, offered me a job. And, and uh, after that, I had several other uh, jurisdictions that called and offered me a job. But I went with Fairfax and, and um, spent uh, the next uh, 27 years uh, with the Fairfax County Police. I worked my way up through the ranks. And I was the chief of police in Fairfax County from 1998 to 2004. Excellent. How was that? time in Ocean City? Um, it was it was fun. Uh, it didn't teach me much about being a professional police officer, but what it taught me was um, that I was uh, in the right profession because uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed um, learning the job and, and, uh, and doing it, even in, in uh, a resort town. Well, it sounds like a good place to get your start uh, and to get your feet wet, literally. <laughs> Sorry. So as Chief of Fairfax County Police Department at the time, uh, during the sniper attacks, you were heavily involved in the investigation. And there you have uh, Chief Moose coming on television during that time, you know, being there for all of us who were sitting at home, worried about leaving home, worried about taking kids to school. What was your view on Chief Moose at the time, kind of in that position? So um, Charles had come on uh, or uh, had joined the Montgomery County Police Department, I think in 1999. That was a year after I had been appointed chief in Fairfax County. So um, Charles came from Portland, Oregon. So I didn't know him prior to that. And when he t uh, took over in Montgomery County, we would um, uh, uh, see each other at regional meetings, at council of government meetings, and you know where uh, the police leadership um, from around the region would get together. And so I'd gotten to know him a little bit um, prior to the uh, sniper attacks uh, starting, and uh, I, I knew uh, he was a he was a, a, a he was a quiet guy, um, very very intense, um, and he. Uh, he understood the difficulty of the job that he took when he came to Montgomery County. He was brought in to reform that department in, in a number of ways. And so it wasn't that he was walking into a department that was, you know, uh, running great and everything was great, you know, everything was fine. He had been brought in to, to fix a number of problems that the department was dealing with. So, um, so I, I, when I would speak with him, um, I could sense the fact that uh, he felt uh, the weight of the job when, uh, you know, uh, I think because of the pressures that were on him um, to, to fix some of the problems in the department. So, um, so again, we'd gotten to know each other a little bit. 
And um, certainly, I, I looked at him as as a as a as a trusted colleague and a uh, and and a pretty good police chief. As a chief in a in a major major county, major metropolitan area, incidents occur all the time, and it's something that you all have to respond to. What is it like for somebody in that position, in your position, in his position? to go from perhaps recurring problems in certain areas that you're working through to serial killers. I mean, that is intense. It, it was intense. And uh, certainly, you know, uh, the, the shooting started. Uh, I don't think anybody uh, understood what we were ultimately dealing with. And because the, the, uh, they had several shootings in, in one day, uh, in Montgomery County, a county that's a, 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 a very safe county, a uh, county where these kinds of uh, shootings, these kinds of homicides typically did not occur. Uh, you could, this was something that was, that was certainly out of the ordinary. And so Chief Moose's um, immediate response to that was, I think, uh, one that, that any police chief would have. It's like, okay, we got to figure out what we have here. Um, and you start to, um, assess what you need to do uh, because there was certainly uh, the the immediately you've got this issue in Montgomery County where you've got these random shootings and people start to to question are we safe and uh, you know the residents are saying well, are we safe in our na- our neighborhoods are we safe in in our cars are we safe you know um, are our children safe all of these questions are going through the residents minds and um, and immediately the police chief is the one that that people are focused on say, okay, chief, what are you going to do? Can you share how Chief Moose became uh, sort of the kind of de facto public information officer given there was a multi-jurisdictional investigation happen? Why, why Montgomery County? Why Chief Moose? Well, I think that uh, it that's where it uh, started. Uh, that's the jurisdiction that had the, the most homicides. And so it made sense that um, that's where um, the sort of the base of operations would be. And it was it was very shortly after um, the first shootings that the FBI and ATF, the Al- Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, um, came to Montgomery County and said, we're here to help. We can we have resources at the federal level that you don't have at the local level. Let us. Uh, help you. And so that's, they set up a command post, they set up um, uh, a telephone line so that tips could come in. And uh, while the the federal uh, resources and the federal law enforcement agencies were um, providing great assistance and, and taking the lead on certain things because they had, they in fact did have resources that local police didn't have. Um, it was, it was Charles Moose that was the face of this investigation. He was the one, look, the residents of Montgomery County weren't asking you know, questions of the FBI or ATF. They were asking questions of their chief of police. And so, um, so Charles um, led those uh, press briefings and uh, yes, they would bring in um, uh, ATF's uh, folks and, and, and FBI folks to give some uh, information but it was Charles that started and ended those uh, press briefings. And um, 
he, uh, while it was a team effort, and that's, I think, one of the important things that uh, lessons from this is that it was, in fact, a team effort. You had federal, state, and local law enforcement resources working on this case um, that uh, it was, it, you never, uh, Chief Moose never didn't own these homicide cases. The same way when when there was a homicide in uh, Fairfax County at the Home Depot, the shooting of Linda Franklin in, at the Home Depot uh, in Seven Corners. Fairfax County owned that case. And we didn't just hand it off to Montgomery County and say, okay, hope you can solve this. I mean, so, the, you know, we were involved. We were part of the task force. We were part of the investigation. But what you didn't need, and, and this is what Chief Moose realized, that what you didn't need is for six, seven, eight different jurisdictions just working independently. We had to work together on this. And that's, in fact, what happened. And somebody had to sort of wrangle that um, uh coordination. And, um, and Moose, in fact, did that. I, I wanted to, to um, mention one thing in particular. Um, after there had been a number of shootings in a number of jurisdictions, Chief Moose said, look, I understand that um, when, you know, uh, Prince William County or when, you know, uh, Prince George's County have uh, a homicide in their jurisdiction, that they need to talk to their public, that they need to provide information. He said, that's fine. He said, but the ideal way to do this would be after you have the homicide, you do one press briefing to the, to the media. After that, everything's coordinated through the press briefings that they, that they were giving in Montgomery County. And that worked. And it really did, uh, was a good system. And uh, so when we had the homicide and at the Home Depot in Seven Corners, um, that next morning, I was standing uh, in Fairfax County out in front of police headquarters, briefing dozens and dozens of, of media folks from all over the country. And after that one briefing, uh, every, everything else in terms of, of public information was coordinated through Montgomery County. And it was a system, I think, that, w that worked well. You didn't have, you know, somebody, you know, in one jurisdiction saying one thing and, and you know, Moose saying another and you had the coordination so that you weren't putting out information that the folks who were running the investigation didn't necessarily want to be want to have put out into the public. So um, that was, I think, one of the um, uh, best things about the way all this was coordinated was to you know sort of put those things in place. And to the extent that we had cooperation from all of the police chiefs and sheriffs involved, um, it worked well. I mean, there were you know there were a couple of times when. We had some some folks um, that were uh, on the I guess the ones that were um, further down uh, south of Richmond that um, they uh, didn't they, they didn't feel like they were being represented or they that their information was being put out you know in Montgomery County so there was some duplication of effort there but even that got uh, worked out and um, so that we had this unity of message which was important in this case. So that leads me to another question that I have, but I want to I want to jump into a moment in the investigation and get your thoughts. So I found an article from The Washington Post by Carol Morello and Sari Horwitz from October 22nd, 2002, titled Police Sources Believe Sniper Wants to Talk. So now we're in the investigation where we have made contact or 
you all have made contact with someone you all believe to be the sniper. So a major development, I would imagine. Yes. Um, and so I just wanted to read a quote from Chief Moose and, and get your thoughts on that. So the article starts, police have started a dialogue with a man they believe is the serial sniper, law enforcement sources said. And yesterday, Montgomery County Police Chief Charles A. Moose appealed to the man to call back because his previous message was, quote, unquote, unclear. Quote, the person you called cannot hear everything you said, Moose said yesterday afternoon in his third cryptic message since Sunday night. The audio was unclear and we want to get it right. Call us back so that we can clearly understand. And that struck me as a very succinct and direct message and a moment where he's using the platform to communicate directly. And then we, the public, are hearing a cryptic message without all the information. And that just seems like an interesting turning point and just wanted to hear what, what you thought about that. Well, that was an investigative strategy on um, on the, the team's part. And when I say the team, I'm talking about the FBI, ATF, Montgomery County, all of the jurisdictions that had uh, a homicide um, involved in, in this uh, investigation. And uh, that was an investigative strategy on his part to get them back on the phone uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, they, I, I don't think that, uh, that the message was necessarily unclear. They just wanted to get them back on the phone because they were, they were looking for any help that they could. They had some ideas uh, at that point. And, and with the um, profilers that were assisting with the case, um, they were giving us advice, too. It said, if you get them back on the phone, here's what you do. And so this, I knew that when he put that out, that it was an investigative strategy, and it was a smart move. And and um, in fact, the uh, uh, that was there were several messages over the over the course of this investigation that were put out that were meant uh, purposefully meant um, for the uh, perpetrators to hear. And did it work? Did they call back? I can't remember whether they called back on on that one or not. Um, it was short, I think, but it was shortly after that that we, in fact, um, uh, started to hone in on who the who the uh, perpetrators were. Right. Interesting. So I wanted to just go back to that other question when you were talking about coordinating the multi-jurisdictional investigation and the strategy of having local jurisdictions address their localities and then yet still having Montgomery County be the central place was that a takeaway that um you or or other law enforcement leaders have used not that this situation has occurred again think thankfully um but is that a takeaway are there other takeaways you know what did you learn during that time that you may still apply to um the job today so a couple of things one um there while thankfully we've not had a, a similar um, sniper type serial uh, shooter, we have had multi-jurisdictional cases. And the fact that we've got a model to look at, at as, as to how can we put all these resources together from, from a number of different departments and maintain some logical um, sense of, of who's doing what. 
And we had, uh, at the time, uh, we had set up task forces. We were, get, we were getting hundreds, thousands of leads um, coming into this FBI call center that was located in Montgomery County. And with each lead that would come in, if it was something that we could act on, something that somebody needed to respond on or look into, it would be depending on where the lead was. Like you, you get something like, um, oh, you know, I live in Arlington and I've got a neighbor who's really odd. He's put, you know, tinfoil up on all his windows and he's got a white van in his driveway. And so we just get information like that. So um, we would, uh, you know, because they, she said it was in Arlington, we would, uh, there was a Northern Virginia task force. There was a DC task force. There was a Prince George's task force. And so depending on where the lead was, it would be farmed out to that task force and then they would follow it up. So it was a very orderly way to keep track of the leads, who had responsibility for them and get the information uh, back, uh, you know, on on whatever was was discovered when the investigators went out to uh, to follow up on the lead. So that was a really good model. And that has been uh, duplicated, I think, a number of times by uh, other jurisdictions. The other big takeaway is. Uh, you've got to form relationships with your partners uh, before a crisis occurs. This was, nobody was expecting this. And the um, while I knew Charles uh, a little bit, we certainly got to know each other a lot better uh, as a result of this case. Same thing, you know, uh, Chuck Ramsey was, was the chief in, in D.C. at the time. Um, and I had gotten to know Chuck a little bit. The fact that all of us uh, uh, developed a, a very close, trusting relationship was a big benefit to uh, working this this case together. And so today, uh, chiefs in in major metropolitan areas like like the one we're in in D.C. Uh, know the value and know the the uh, necessity of forming those relationships uh, and having those in place so that when something big does happen, you're not meeting someone for the first time at a crime scene and saying, oh, hey, hi, you know, we guess we got to work together. You've got that relationship in place, hopefully the trust in place um, so that you can just uh, take off, you know, or, you know, immediately and work together and uh, seamlessly because because that's what the public expects. And that's frankly what the public deserves is for law enforcement to work seamlessly together to uh, uh, to either solve a case or to make sure that the community is as safe as it can be. So what was it like succeeding Chief Moose at Montgomery County PD? Maybe especially after you all have built relationship throughout the sniper investigations. Was that something you saw yourself doing at one point? Was that a, a surprise? How did that, that transpire? So I... Um uh, had been the police chief in, in Fairfax County for about six years. Um, I was eligible to retire. And I thought to myself, you know, I could uh, um, I could retire from Fairfax and then um, just move across the river and, and uh, ba- in fact, back to Montgomery County, which, where um, I had lived for 10 years prior to um, when I was in high school and college. Um, and, uh, you know, my family still lived over there. I had my parents. Uh, I had uh, a sister. Uh, one of my sisters lived over in Montgomery County. So um, it felt like a, a natural move to go back there since they were looking for a chief. And um, uh, I was fortunate enough to get the job. And uh, it was uh, – I've 
I felt like I, I had some connection to Montgomery County because I'd lived there uh, um, as a teenager and, and um, uh, but certainly had uh, a little bit of knowledge about the police department, about uh, certainly the, the, the sniper case was still recent enough that it was a, a, always a topic on the mind of the public. And so when I took over in Montgomery County, um, I found out just how um, uh, busy Chief Moose had been. I mean, the, the sniper case aside, he had done a lot for that police department. He put a lot of um, reforms into place. He would put a lot of improvements into place. Uh, one of the things that really struck me when I got there was the quality of the people in the, certainly on my leadership team. You know, the assistant chiefs and uh, captains, uh, they, they were um, – they were top notch. And I thought to myself, you know, this is uh, every department has things that, that they need to work on. But I said, Moose has really put a good leadership team together and he had a good leadership team while he was there. So um, I, I applaud him for, you know, putting such good people into place. So when I got there, um, I think I had it much easier than he did when he took over in 1999. I certainly was taking it over in uh, 2004 with a department that was in much better uh, in a much better position to uh, to do the things that they needed to do. What would you hope other law enforcement leaders would learn from Chief Moose, either directly from his actions or the type of leader that he was? First and foremost, uh, the importance of working as a team. Everybody, every single police chief um, who was involved in the sniper case felt pressure um, from their community to uh, restore their sense of safety. This was a time, and for, the, for those of, uh, that were around here during that time, they can recall vividly how, just how people changed their daily routines, did things that were just odd, um, because of the threat of this sniper that you never knew when or where uh, somebody might start shooting. And people always tell, uh, you know, talk about the fact that um, gas stations had put big tarps over the, the pumps so that, that people could hide while they were pumping their gas. Uh, people would park their car at the grocery store and they would run. They would like sprint into the grocery store because they didn't want to, um, you know, be outside in the parking lot. Uh, there were just so many things that people, uh, you know, uh, changed their lives that the um, police chiefs knew that their community didn't feel safe. And that's like the worst thing for a police chief. You say, well, this community doesn't feel safe. Certainly, uh, you got a question, is the police chief doing their job? So every single police chief um, involved in this case felt this pressure. And it was, uh, and it was Charles Moose and Montgomery County, and, and I give credit to ATF and FBI that said, look, this, we got to work as a team. This, is, this involves, you know, uh, over half a dozen jurisdictions. We've got to work together on this. And the fact that um, we did and the fact that that became, a, a, you know, a, a model for future multi-jurisdictional uh, investigations, I think says a lot about um, the people who were leading that uh, leading that investigation and and making the decisions about, you know, how are we going to best uh, work effectively and efficiently together? From the public's perspective, what is it that you would want us to remember from Chief Moose's service as chief of police for Montgomery County Police Department? So I think um, 
it's important for people to know, and I don't, I'm not sure everybody knows um, his his history or or much about him, other than when he was, you know, in this high profile case involving the sniper. This is a man who dedicated his life to public service. He did a career, a policing career in Portland, Oregon. He then comes to uh, all the way across the country to a uh, department he knows nothing about and uh, takes on some some real challenges there um, and makes a difference. Um, all the while, he is serving in the National Guard and continued his service in the National Guard. So this is a man that really dedicated his life to public service. And uh, I'm not sure that, that folks just know how um, uh, how much of his life was was uh, geared toward helping others and uh, and upholding the the Constitution of the United States. So um, certainly a, a very good man and and um, uh, did did a lot of great things uh, in his life. I, I rec- the last time I saw Charles um, was actually during Hurricane Katrina, and I had um, uh, I was in Montgomery County at the time. I had sent a contingent of police officers, and uh, and the fire chief had sent uh, a number of firefighters uh, to to go down to help with rescues and help with the problems in New Orleans uh, right after Katrina. And the fire chief and I decided, you know, we uh, let's go down and visit our folks down in, in New Orleans, make sure they're okay, and just you know uh, thank them for for uh, taking on this challenge. So we went down to New Orleans, and New Orleans was a mess. It was uh, just in the immediate aftermath, and it just awful, the things that, that they were dealing with. And so I went to um, uh, one of the municipal buildings in New Orleans, and uh, someone told me that the National Guard was meeting in a, in a particular room. And um, I, was, uh, I was talking to the um, superintendent of the New Orleans police at the time, and um, uh, he said to me, he said, he says, yeah, he says, um, remember, he says, uh, Chief Moose is, is in that room. He's talking to talk to some of his troops. And sure enough, I went by and, and uh, there he was. He was leading a discussion for a bunch of National Guardsmen. And, um, uh, you know, we, we exchanged pleasantries and we were both busy and, and uh, didn't get a chance to talk to him uh, the way I would have liked to. But um, it was, uh, you know, it, it was the last time I saw him and it just um really solidified in my mind that this is a man who is serving his country um, in one way or another. And he continued to do that even after he left Montgomery County. That's a great story and um, really illustrates that commitment and to keep going in service to this country and to our communities, even after an event like the sniper attacks is incredible. So um, he sounds like an amazing person. And I really want to thank you for coming here today and sharing more about your experience with him and your own experience during that time. And so I want to also thank everybody for listening. And now let's hear from Chief Moose himself. It's now a year later, um, September 11th, you know, the first year anniversary kind of comes and goes. We do all of the staffing, you know, at the various sites, we ramp up everything and, and somehow the, the whole area, in effect, the whole nation makes it through the first anniversary of September 11th. And um, only to find in 
shortly after that, in October, uh, we now have bodies on the ground in Montgomery County. And it is just um, different, it's strange. Uh, one, because we just don't have that many homicides, but two, it's the nature where no one sees anything, no one hears anything. Uh, you know, you're, you're used to, well, what did they fight about? What was the confrontation about? Uh, you know, we had the one shooting on the night uh, with the gentleman going into the grocery store. We don't really know what that's about. But then the next morning when we have several back-to-back -back shootings, we started to realize that something is very different uh, something strange is happening, uh, and then you combine, combine that with it's connected to the shooting um, the night before. And so now we actually have a crisis in Montgomery County that we can't explain. We, we set up the initial uh, uh, media piece, and then we make an internal commitment to, uh, you know, certainly not throughout the night, but uh, during the day and evening, uh, we make a commitment that at least every four hours or maybe a couple of times a day, we're going to have to do media briefings just because uh, there's such intense interest. And then um, then I, I certainly want to make sure we have a commitment to a concept that I was taught in the military um, that, that said you had to do uh, maximum disclosure at minimum delay. And, and that that maximum disclosure actually says, well, there may be things that you can't tell them, but you need to always think about the maximum. That doesn't say 100 percent. That doesn't say you give up everything just because they ask. But it does say you, you make a conscious effort to do maximum, do as much as you can. And then the minimum delay is hopefully a little clear. It just says that you don't delay that. And so therefore, the couple of times a day, the every four hours, that just means that you have to consciously say uh, you're not going to delay. And, you know, and it's just kind of a um, maybe throws people, maybe sometimes you go out and you talk to the press and they feel like you didn't really have anything new to say. But I think the, the uh, thing that people overlook is there's a lot to be gained by listening to the media's questions. Um, it gives you some idea what they and they think their audience are interested in. Uh, if they're doing, quote, an investigation of their own, it gives you some idea where they may be leading with regards to their investigation. And so by listening to their question, you have one option of just answering their question, but two, you have the option of then later um, trying to research and find their answer. And then three, you may actually be able to ascertain where they're headed as a result of their question. So there's things to be learned by listening to questions from the media. You know, we're in Montgomery County, it's right across the line from Washington, D.C., but it's not Washington, D.C., it's not the Washington field office. We're in Maryland, so Maryland uses the Maryland field office and the largest Maryland field office is the Baltimore field office. Even though when you live in Montgomery County, it's like nobody talks about Baltimore. Uh, you know, it's just kind of one of those that's in 
some other part of the United States, <laughs> even though, you know, again, technically it's actually Maryland, uh, but we just talk about Prince George's County, we talk about Prince William's County, we talk about Fairfax, we talk about Washington, D.C., but nobody ever seems to make the connection that Baltimore is where um, our resources are coming from. You know, it was a real struggle to uh, make that decision about the letter because uh, we did need to help. Uh, it didn't look like we were making any, um, any rapid progress. But the dilemma was uh, the fear that they would come and take over. Uh, the fear was that uh, Montgomery County would look uh, incompetent, that we would look incompetent as a county government, as a local police department that the county executive would be incompetent, that the police chief would be incompetent, that the state's attorney would not be up to speed, um, and that the men and women of the police department would be insulted, kind of like, well, how dare you? Um, you don't trust us. Then, you know, after this is over, uh, then you can just, like, continue to not trust us, and we're not going to work for you. We're not going to perform. We're not going to, you know, go 100%. So, you, you know, I'm in conversation with county executives saying, well, we've got all of these potential uh, potholes if, if we do this. Uh, but the other pothole is uh, if we don't do this, we might not catch them. And so you kind of go, well, what's the worst of the worst here? Kind of to be potentially incompetent or incompetent for sure because we didn't catch them. Uh, and so then it's kind of a matter of the FBI, Gary Ball, has said they're not interested in taking over. But you know that there's people above Gary Ball. And, um, you know, we hadn't really had any discussion with the U.S. attorney about that. It's just, you know, once you send the letter, the only discussion we had is that he will very likely from the staff, he will approve it right away. You know, he's not going to sit there and uh, and spend four days deliberating. Um, so you kind of got to go. You just kind of need to decide if you want to send it. That was that was refreshing because, you know, generally there is some risk that the federal government bogs down. Uh, but the, the real scary part was, do you ask them? Um, the idea is that they come as a team but the risk is that they come and take over. And so I think the, the ultimate decision was the right decision. We need help. And so you hope the help comes with the right attitude. Uh, it's not your fault, ultimately, if the help comes with the wrong attitude. But if you don't ask for help and you fail, then that clearly is your problem. The white van is uh, a matter that is uh, probably going to historically be um, a point of interest and debate. Um, you know, certainly a lot of people are quick to say that we wasted a lot of time and resources on the white van. Um, as um, law enforcement personnel, you know, I think we just tried to explain to people that we had witnesses tell us that they saw a white van uh, driving quickly away from the scene where one of these shootings occurred. Just one shooting? No. No, I'm just saying... In other words, white vans were cited in more than one case. White vans were cited in more than one case, driving quickly away from the scene. And so therefore, um, maybe um, 
after the first one and we actually said that, uh, you run some risk now that you've actually painted that vision in the mind of a potential witness. You've actually told them to look for one and now they actually are just following through on what you told them two days ago. Uh, you know, I don't um, have enough educational background to explain that whole psychological piece of could we have created that in the minds of people? Could we have driven that to the front of their minds because we were talking about it? Probably yes to all of that, but I don't know and I don't have any data and I'm not smart enough to, to say conclusively that, that we did that. But what I did want to say is that Early on, we had a citizen report that they saw a white van driving quickly away from the scene of one of these shootings. And once we went down the path of reporting that, uh, we committed to saying that we're not going to dismiss this citizen input. We, we went through quite a bit of um, effort to create this call us, hold up the signs of the numbers, uh, change the number because that phone bank wasn't big enough, but we, we really put a lot of energy in. We can't solve this alone. We need your help. And so once we did that, and then once we created this, one person has seen, then other people seem to have seen also. Now, what they saw varied in detail. So we certainly had the whole thing about the box truck then we had the whole thing about a van. And then ultimately we were looking at both vans and white trucks. Um, and then the whole thought is that somehow they're shooting out of the back of the box truck. And, but they've got laundry or tablecloths from one of the restaurants. And that's why the sound was muffled because they're laying on top of all of these tablecloths that they picked up from whatever hotel had some big event and they're shooting out the back. So the, the speculation just kind of, you know, the whole mushroom cloud just took off from there. Uh, and so we don't know if we caused that, but yeah, academically I'd probably say, yeah, we probably caused some of that, but then, you know, professionally I'll stay committed to the fact that we're not going to just dismiss citizen input, especially if we ask for citizen input. Yes, and uh, and certainly, uh, you know, it goes back one first step further where, you know, there's the note and then there's the phone call where they say, you know, we're the real guys. You need to talk to us. You need to give us the money. And if you don't believe us, check the case in Montgomery. And again, you know, not to the detriment of the person on the phone, but yeah, I'm in Montgomery County. I don't need to check Montgomery. I know something's going wrong in Montgomery. Little did, you know, we process that he's talking about Montgomery, Alabama. And so then when you, when you, that piece kind of comes to light, you got the thumbprint, then you got the, you know, Malvo's connected to Muhammad. Then you've got Muhammad being called early on in the investigation, the person from Tacoma, the old neighbor that calls to Maryland and says, I think it's John Muhammad. And we're like, okay, well, that's interesting. We'll write that down. You got anything else? And it's like, well, no, but I just think it's him. And you just kind of go, well, appreciate it, but God, that's really not enough, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
it's it's so perspective. But, but once so you once you got then the thumbprint and the shooting in Montgomery, you know, with Mavo connected to Muhammad, then all of a sudden the I think it's Muhammad makes sense. But till then, you know, it's like there's there's a couple of weeks in there where, you know, that initial piece doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Perspective is is such an element in this, isn't it? Because looking at it from the front end, you've got 1,400 people processing information, 60,000 leads coming in, and this is just, these are just little elements within that large framework. But then when you look at it from, from the discovery back, you think, why didn't they pick this, this up, right? I mean, isn't that... No, that's, that's clearly, you know, the... the um you know, that's where the media, you know, at the end, they, they look at it all back and they just go, well, if I was doing this, I would have just known, you know, the first day. And and and, and so you just kind of go, well, that's, I guess that's good journalism in somebody's school. But, uh, but yeah, that we needed the whole thing before we could, before we could do that. Um, it's like a puzzle, you know, Unfortunately, a lot of young people today probably have never even put a puzzle together. But I think, you know, some some of us are old enough to remember when, you know, there was a puzzle. There were the easy ones. And then all of a sudden there's the one that sits on the middle of the table for a couple of years because it's a zillion pieces. But, you know, if you look at the investigation that way, you pick up one piece and it doesn't make any sense. So the, the phone call from the man in Tacoma doesn't make any sense. But we didn't throw it away. Just like a puzzle, you don't throw it away. You kind of put it back in and you try to remember, did you put it to the left? Did you put it to the right? But you put it to the side. And then you work on some other stuff. And then all of a sudden, this makes a lot of sense. And, and I guess that may be an oversimplification, but to me, that's what happened. Um, I think the, the other key is now 10 years later, um, you know, there's, there's equipment that, you know, you can set on the side of the road and you can run 5,000 cars by, and that system will be able to tell you who all those cars are registered to. You know, it'll just be able to, you just, the license plate identifier, you can just do all that. The computer can do all that. The camera can read them all, and then it can process them. You know, no police officer could do that. No police officer could probably write them all down fast enough. But then they'd have to go somewhere and, and sit. Well, you know, now we have equipment that can do all of that. Okay, so now, um, in addition to actually searching the box truck, we could have that all of the plates would be entered, and then, you know, Muhammad's name would be run, and then it would be matched to the phone call that we got, you know. And then it's like, well, maybe it's worth looking at because we got a phone call, he's in the area, you know, then we would also have he's been in the area of the other three shootings or the other five shootings. So, you know, then probably pretty quickly you could process this guy needs to be looked at. You know, there may be three other people, maybe no phone call, but maybe three other people for some strange reason were also in the same area. But you could you could at least then find both of them. And then it's like, well, what are you doing in the area? And then one, you know, if 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 Larry actually says, you know, here are the records of the deliveries and this is what I do. And OK, well. And, you know, he's never owned any gun. He's never done anything. 
He's got people to vouch for him. Well, then we can eliminate him. But then at least we would have Muhammad, and then we would still have, in addition to his trying to justify, we still got the phone call. And then, you know, then we'll probably do more work with the phone call. Who is he with? What do you know about him? You know, then we get the tree trunk. Then we get the Malvo piece. So, you know, I clearly I'm okay rationalizing that now, 10 years later, we could do this a lot quicker because of the technology that's out there. Um, but I think, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm um, being defensive by saying 10 years ago, uh, considering what we had to work with, 22 days is still pretty quick. You know, but yeah, was it ever going to be quick enough uh, for the media? Um, I doubt it. But, you know, again, I don't I don't means that I think that media is an enemy. I just think that. Um, hindsight and 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 some people are just. Um, interested in controversy and and uh, and, you know, if you're going to read the paper and you're actually in government and you want to read the paper to so they can say how good you did, then uh, good luck. You know, I, I just think that those articles are going to be uh, rare and few. But uh, it can happen, but it's just not going to be routine where that's what's going to be in the newspaper about how great you are. Tried to advocate for a lot of communication with the media, see a lot of benefits, uh, have seen a lot of um, crime prevention be done, you know, via the media. A lot of people kept out of uh, crimes of opportunity because, you know, you can put certain things in the media and tell people to stay away. Uh, so there are a lot of benefits that, to be able to communicate with vast numbers of people. Um, but at the same hand, there are times when you're conducting an investigation where, um, as strange as it may seem, you, you want to have some relationship and some credibility with people that are doing bad things um, because there is a benefit to communicating with them. Um, you increase the chance that they may uh, have some kind of slip, some kind of forwarding slip in their conversation, uh, that you may be able to pick up something from um, where they're calling from. Uh, and certainly in today's world, uh, you may be able to uh, locate the cell phone tower um, to kind of uh, help you pin down where they are. So there, there are reasons why you want to communicate and have uh, some kind of trusting communication with people that are doing bad things. And so when they um, actually reach out and drop a card that uh, tells you that they want to communicate and that they want to be called a certain thing and that they don't want you to tell the media, um, in the occasion of this sniper shooting, uh, this tarot card was good news. Uh, it clearly, uh, well, maybe I want to say clearly, but at least in my mind, it was a strong piece of evidence that we weren't dealing with terrorists. Uh, up to then, we really hadn't had any contact. And so um, even though you didn't want to say it, there still was this fear that what if we're dealing with some type of terrorist organization, be it local or, I mean, domestic or international, terrorism is different than criminal. 
and uh, and and you know certainly um, you want to have respect for all people, but there's a long history of criminals making mistakes, and then when they ask us to not tell the media, we want to have some kind of relationship, some kind of trust because this is really bad, and we want to figure out a way to stop it. But most of us have figured out that. It's tough to communicate with people that don't trust you. Uh, be it the minority community that doesn't trust you, they don't open up and talk to you about things that are occurring. Many of us have spouses that we fail to communicate with and now we don't have that spouse. Uh, we have kids that we fail to communicate with. So we, we think we understand that trust has something to do with it. And so when the tarot card is actually then in the media, after they asked us to not tell the media, we're greatly concerned that that's going to be a trust issue. And, and even though we are at the very first of this relationship, okay, well, do you, you really don't want to start your relationships by destroying the trust. You know, maybe after you build enough trust, you actually get the luxury of maybe making an error, but because of that trust, you get forgiveness. But at the very start, it's very tough to get forgiveness for trust. And so we're concerned that we've broken this trust because the media has this card. Um, and then certainly there's the whole matter of, OK, that means you have a leak in your organization. So what are you going to do about it? And I think that we clearly made the right decision that um, to not bite on that piece of bait and just said, we're not going to do any kind of investigation. We're not going to do anything. Um, we've got to try to find the people that are doing these killings and we're going to move on because I think there's some people that wanted us then to get bogged down in how did the media get this? And, you know, and, and then it's like on one hand, you just want to sit in a room with him and say, I don't have to do an investigation. You can just tell me and I can just fix it. And then, you know, we can continue to try to catch this person. But then, you know, they want to play this whole game about, They've got the right to not tell, and you know, and you're just kind of going, well, then personally, I'm thinking, well, then you're not really interested in solving the problem because you should just tell me who in the police department gave you this, and then I can take them off of the case, and then we can move on. But, you know, that, that was just a, that conversation, and it's never going to go down that way. But, but as a layperson, in terms of the media, I sure wish it would, but that wasn't going to happen. Now, the second part of your question was? Revealing the uh, license plate number and the timing on that. Right. Toward the end there, um, there were several things that came into play about the license plate. Um, I think from a, um, I don't know if ego is the right word, but internally, I think that Many of us wanted a chance to find the plate and John Muhammad um, from a traditional law enforcement standpoint. We've got this information. We're going to go out and we're going to find them. Um, you combine that with the fact that, that uh, we were able to rationalize that if we put this out in the general public, um, they're watching and they will then run, they will dump the car, they will change the plate, um, they will lay in wait 
So, you know, place the car and then sit back somewhere and then shoot us as we approach the car. So we're having all of these, oh my God, they're watching everything we do. And as soon as we put this out, that's like, that's gonna alert them. You know, I think uh, the casual thing to say is that, um, you know, if you put my plate out and my picture, then let's hope that, you know, after 59 years of being a law-abiding citizen that I would be uh, stunned and I would immediately go and turn myself into the police department. But in terms of these guys, we really didn't think that, well, as soon as they see that, John Muhammad's gonna go turn himself in. The thought was, as soon as he sees this, then our job has just got 100 times harder because now um, he's gonna be a rabbit. He's gonna be on the run. And, um, and so I think we wanted to try to give law enforcement some narrow period of time to actually hunt him down now that we had this plate without actually alerting him. But um, that didn't happen. Somehow the, um, you know, we, we tried to do a wide distribution of the uh, information to law enforcement. And then that um, resulted in it becoming something that the media had access to. And so, um, The good fortune is it worked out. Um, they weren't watching. Um, and the people who were uh, listening and, and heard or saw the information, uh, saw the car and called us and did the right thing. And, and we were able to capture them without any major incident. So it all worked out, but um, there was this whole uh, strategy, this whole delay, this whole debate about uh, the best approach. Um, and then I think it's just always going to be a um, point of contention with the media uh, because some people in the media say that the only reason they were captured is because we put the plate out. And we know you didn't want us to put the plate out, but since we did, uh, they're captured. So therefore, from now to to the end of time, uh, anything that needs to be done, you need to give it to us and we'll make sure it gets done. And you kind of go, okay, well, that's, uh, that's quite the quantum leap. But uh, again, that, that is, um, you know, it, it happened. Uh, we didn't particularly want it to happen that way, but it worked out. And so it is, um, I guess it falls in the category of police work is uh, not science, it's probably an art. And, uh, and so sometimes art is in the eye of the beholder and, um, and, and there are no formulas or rule books. It's just kind of one of those, you, you, you go with it. Um, I think some people would prefer it be a science, but I think when you're dealing with human beings and human nature, uh, you run the risk that science is not ever going to be uh, exact. And you surprised me that uh, you didn't want to rush up to exit 42 on the interstate the night that the capture was made. You stayed home. And just explain your reasoning on that. 
Well, certainly it was important that um, that we allow the people that um, have the expertise uh, to do what they do. Um, I, I guess it's similar to um, the roadblocks. When we uh, weren't sure early on in the investigation what to do, um, there were a number of traffic officers that came to a group of chiefs. We were having a meeting and they suggested that we do these roadblocks. And, um, and so you kind of said to him, well, thank you very much for your input and, uh, and we'll put it on our list. We've got some other things to decide and we'll, we'll add that to the list and we'll talk to you later. Uh, they don't get to decide because, you know, it's a major policy in terms of blocking that kind of traffic in the Washington metropolitan area. Uh, but they got to have their input. And um, so then eventually, I guess, in terms of the policy and the politics, the people responsible for that, we said, OK. And then we went back to them and said, it's okay. We didn't go back to them and say, okay, we're going to do roadblocks as in the chiefs will get in our cars and go do it. Say, okay, now the experts, you can go do that. But the decision had to come from a, a different level. And I guess on terms of arresting, it's like, well, you don't have to give them permission to go and arrest. But, uh, you know, once you know, that very intense meeting about him being the person and this being the plate and this is what the flyers look like. Once that piece was done, then you turn it back to the experts and that being all the patrol officers. But then once the car is found, um, then it's like there's another set of experts that have been training and working together since day one that we stood up the task force. There's been a arrest team organized. The best SWAT guys from all of these organizations on the task force, the helicopters, even from the Department of Defense, our helicopter from the Maryland State Police, it's been set aside, designated. It's, you know, you just don't, you can't take it to a meeting over in Fairfax. You know, you, it, it's, it just sits there for the day that it's needed for the arrest. And if we never make an arrest, then people are going to say, we saw that helicopter and it never did anything. Well, it, that's right. It never did anything because when we needed it for the arrest, we didn't want some chief to be riding around in it, you know, or some whatever to be, you know, it needed to be there. Because these guys have been training, practicing. They, they are experts at what they do. They've come together as a team and this is what they do. So, um, uh, there's no need for me to be there. They know what they're doing. Um, just because you make chief doesn't mean you like uh, are the best shooter. Doesn't mean you're the best handcuffer. Doesn't mean you're the best guy using a um, anything. It just means you've got some of these skills that whoever's name's the chief, they're looking for those skills and you've demonstrated them. But that doesn't mean you are the best person on the department to make an arrest. And so uh, you combine that with the fact that at one point in my career, I was commander of the SWAT team. Um, I know that people in management get in the way when they come to these kind of scenes. I know that they cause problems. Uh, I know that they don't know what they're doing. I know that they're generally older individuals. I know that they generally aren't as fit 
as the people on the SWAT teams. Um, so I, I've seen that problem. I've seen that problem that they cause. I've seen that, how they create havoc. And so, yeah, you want to go, you want to be the guy. Everybody wants to be the guy. You know, every day when I drove to work, every day if I drove uh, to a meeting, you know, I'm just looking, I'm hoping, man, why am I on my way to meeting? I found the sniper, I arrested him. Everybody, every police officer within a thousand miles wanted to be that person, you know? And, and, uh, and yeah, would I love to have done it just on my own, not needed the SWAT team? I just found him. He was like laying behind the gun and I just went up behind him and I'm the guy. But, you know, clearly that didn't happen. But then once you got him in a takedown situation, then you really got to let the people that train and practice and know how to do a takedown do the takedown. I mean, for no other reason, I don't even have any flashbangs, okay? We don't issue those to everybody. But the SWAT teams got them. They used them. You know, long guns. We don't issue long guns with scopes to everybody. But there are guys on the SWAT team. That's what they do. They practice. They're good at it. And so you have to exercise that discipline. Uh, and I don't mean to say that any management person that was there is not disciplined. So, you know, the disappointing part was uh, after the sniper, after they were in custody, um, you know, a lot of the task force members went back to work. Patrolmen went back on, on patrol. And so then it was like, I still had time on my schedule because part of my schedule is to do things out in public. And so I got to go to a number of schools. And uh, I was just so sad because the kids all wanted to know what it was like when I handcuffed Muhammad. And so I had to explain, uh, even though I'm there in all my glory, uh, that I didn't handcuff him, uh, that I didn't arrest him. And you could just see the kids, they just were deflated uh, because, you know, in their minds, that's that's who they want to meet. That's who they want to talk to. And, um, you know, and, and you didn't even have to try to explain or anything, but it was just kind of fascinating. You know, I think I knew that was going to happen, but the first time it did happen, I think I was devastated, too, <laughs> because, you know, it was uh, right after it ended. Um, Man, any police officer could walk in any school in Montgomery County and they would just like, they would all just stand and applaud. You know, it was uh, it was a phenomenal time. Uh, but then you kind of wanted to say something or do something to further endure them. But, you know, it's kind of like then when you go, OK, questions and they that'd be the first one. And, you know, it's almost like even without that, I think any police officer that goes into school, they they always want to know if you ever shot anybody, you know, and, and so hopefully most of us can say no, but it, it's, uh, you know, you're just kind of back to reality and that these are real young people and this is the kind of thing kids are interested in and uh, they're not interested in how many computers and how many data takers and, <laughs> you know, that stuff doesn't, doesn't excite them. You know, I think there was a, a great deal of relief and, uh, and happiness after that. I think that I don't, know that I'll ever see a, a group of people collectively as happy. Um, you know, kids that just actually would admit that I'm happy to be able to go outside. You know, they weren't saying I need this, I need that, or I need this kind of phone, or I need this game. They were just like, can I go outside and run and be okay doing that? And then the teachers and the parents would say, yeah, just go ahead. 
You know, the fact that they could uh, have their football games, that people weren't trying to get on the military base to have their football game or after school activity. So really the simple things um, became important again. And so it was nice to see, um, you know, even though you're, you're living in the modern world, uh, you're living in the 21st century, you, you, um, you realize that expectations have been wrapped up and you're glad expectations have been wrapped up. But it was almost uh, nice to see things uh, drummed down to where just going outside and sitting on a park bench was bringing satisfaction to someone. And they would actually articulate that. And that actually being able to uh, go to the gas station and get a tank of gas, no matter what the price, was actually okay. You know, And they were glad that they lived in this country where they could do that now again uh, and feel safe. So I thought it was very positive that, that the simple things were back to being important. And I'm sure over time though, you know, that eroded and, and you know, then we're back to our same old selves that it has to be, you know, this level movie or something else to actually make us happy or, or get our attention. But it was, it was fascinating to see the simple things become important again. And, uh, and, and the goodwill that the police gathered, you know, we just wanted to put it in a bottle and save it because we knew that, you know, we we're going to do something soon to erode that goodwill. And we wish we could open up that bottle and say, hey, remember us? <laughs> but, you know, you did enjoy it, but you also knew that it was more likely to be fleeting. In part two of this special series, we will hear the story of Virginia State Trooper Charles Mark Coslett. His story is one you may not have heard in the context of the sniper investigation, but his loss is deeply felt by those who knew and loved him, and he was undeniably influenced by the enormity of the sniper case. We owe a very special thanks to our sponsor for this series on this sniper anniversary, Off-Duty Management. Be sure to check them out online at offdutymanagement.com. Thanks also to Christopher Mitchell, our manager of digital content and strategy for producing today's episode. And many thanks to you for listening to this special series, part of the Precinct 444 podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will join us again for part two of 20 years after the Beltway Sniper. This has been a Precinct 444 production brought to you from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Please subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 E Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org. And stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.